Let's uh, open the Word of God, please, to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. And allow me to start just by reading from the New American Standard Bible. It says, verses 13 through 17, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer, For the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, Those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. Uh, The key to these five verses hang at the back door of the passage. We have five verses in a unit, Russell, but the real key is the very last verse, And this is kind of a shocker, I think, to American, modern American Christian ears. It's better from God's perspective. It's better from the spiritual perspective, from, uh, let's call it the divine viewpoint perspective for Russell or for, uh, uh, Amanda or for Olga, uh, to do the right thing, to do the good things and suffer for it than to compromise our character and avoid suffering. I mean, I know Ron has probably done more study on this than I have, but uh, to those who preach the ever-popular prosperity gospel, if you have enough faith, you're never really going to get very sick, and you're always going to have plenty of money. It's called the health and wealth gospel, which isn't the gospel Jesus preached, but to people that are very popular in our culture, Joel Olstein, etc., uh, this verse just doesn't fit into their system, and it will not be preached. It's better for you to do the right thing and suffer and maybe lose your health and lose your wealth. And let me remind you, the readers of this book, the original readers, go back to the very first verse of chapter 1, they lost their jobs and their pensions and their culture and their extended families because of their faith. And it wasn't because they didn't have enough faith. It's because they actually lived out their faith. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, writing this under inspiration to those who reside as par epidemois in the original, as refugees. They've been forced to leave their homes near Antioch of Syria and scatter all across modern Turkey precisely because they did the right thing. So this is kind of a shocking statement. And yet it fits into a larger passage that says this, even in the worst kind of chaotic circumstances, and you cannot control your circumstances all the time, can you? Even in the worst kind of chaotic circumstances and undeserved suffering, believers can choose stability of character. Julie Demerson can't have stability of circumstances. Everything's changing all the time. But she can choose stability of character as we continue to trust and obey the Lord regardless of our circumstances. So that's what we're going to look at today. Very kind of uh, 200 proof, if I can say that, divine viewpoint here. Uh, 
That's a terrible metaphor, by the way. But I'm going out of town for two weeks, and hopefully you'll be over it by the time I get back. Uh, let's pray for uh, teachability to God's Word, and also for those who protect and serve our First Amendment right. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's the very first part of the First Amendment, and it allows us to do this uh, under the laws of this country. And people like that firefighter at Ground Zero on September 11th and these three gentlemen who were killed in Baton Rouge, Louisiana about a year ago, and these folks, all of whom we know and love, who are serving our active military, they protect our right to be able to do this. So uh, let's pray we'll be teachable to God's Word. And let's pray for those who protect and, and service. And uh, tell you what, uh, Ron Miller, if you would pray for us in that direction. You know, Ron is a very generous guy. Ron's a very generous guy, and, and I'm not obsessive compulsive or anything. But he had uh, told me that he gave the church somewhere between 175 and 180 of these very nice pens, and. Uh, the problem with really nice pens, uh, I tend to lose mine or misplace them, but that's a, now it's kind of a stealth outreach, so feel free to lose these. But uh, he said 175 to 180, but the man always under-promises and over-delivers. I counted them, and there were 182. So I'm not obsessive-compulsive, but I can tell you the man gives you more than he claims to give. Uh, we're looking at the book of First Peter. It has two basic parts controlled by a purpose statement. We're in the second part over here on the on the right side of the ledger. We're we're seeing divine viewpoint about submission. Christian life is all about submission, and submission can't be a bad thing because Jesus submitted to the plan of the Father to make Shauna savable. So she's very happy about that submission. So all of us should see submission is something we freely give to others under God, and that's what makes the world work. And also this section, second section of the book, deals with how to think about and survive in uh, in suffering, including unfair suffering. Now the purpose statement is kind of the umbrella under which the whole book operates. He tells you why he's writing as he shifts gears from part one to part two. And he says, as spiritual aliens and short-timers on earth, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a whole different breed of cat, okay? You're in the world, but you're not of the world. Uh, this world is not your home. We're just a passing through. And so Michael Birch can say this just as much as Publius or Synthike could have, the original readers. As spiritual aliens, short-timers on earth, Christians should not be controlled by our emotions. They will fool you. Uh, they should be appreciators, not initiators. Uh, our feelings, but we should consistently live our life centered on our Lord Jesus Christ. We see it again in our passage. When you're facing unfair suffering and even persecution, sanctify Christ as Lord. Just get recentered on that. Such that unbelievers who may slander us because we are Christians and because of our convictions will see the reality of Christ, not Brad, but Christ in our lives and ultimately glorify God by coming to him in faith. That's the purpose statement. Think of that. As you read the book, and uh, if you uh, accept the Steve Skinner challenge, the uh, the attempt to read through the whole book in one sitting, okay, 
Shiloh. You can read through this whole book in about 15 minutes. One whole book of the Bible, 15 minutes. It's not that long. Uh, and the more you read through it in a sitting, uh, the more you'll see how it all fits together. And my preaching will improve, won't it? Yeah. Uh, I think the takeaway of the book, the overall impact of the book is, for Tom Robertson, keep on trusting and obeying the Lord, the Lord who saved you, who gave you eternal life, uh, in the trials of this life, even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason, you can't think of one, to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. That's basically what the book is is talking about. And uh, we go from that premise to this shocking statement. According to the Word of God, it's better for us to do the right thing and suffer for it than for us to prosper but compromise our convictions. That's a shocking statement. Here are some more shocking statements. Many scientists believe that the rings of Saturn will slowly evolve into giant bracelets. Let me explain. Um, (laughs) They think the rings of Saturn are going to slowly evolve into bracelets. Many scientists, not all of them. I don't mind explaining the jokes. Uh, men with long, bushy beards are 87, studies consistently show this, 87% less likely to blow bubbles when they chew gum. Can you relate to that, Anthony? From a distance, National Geographic recently, uh, cover story. From a distance, albino polar bears look very similar to regular polar bears. That was a 10-year study sponsored by the federal government, and they they proved it. $100 million well spent. And finally, in 2016, global warming destroyed almost 1 million friendly conversations. Let's move on. Uh, Our passage is five verses, four affirmations. We have an interrogative. That's a fancy word for a question. Then we have an insight, a divine viewpoint insight. Then we have a couple of imperatives or commands, and then a final insight. And as we say, that's the thing that the whole passage revolves around. It's better for us to do the right thing and suffer the consequences than for us to compromise our integrity. Basically, always act in integrity, Brant, even after you get married, and trust God to take care of the problems. Okay? Uh, If you don't act in your integrity, you cause yourself a lot of problems that you can't deal with. Okay, let's look at the uh, the interrogative here. The first verse, which is a fancy word for question, right? Look at verse thirteen. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Uh, who's going to harm us for doing good? As a general rule, you don't get in trouble for driving the speed limit. Do you, Brandy? You're never going to get pulled over for driving the speed limit. Uh, as a general rule, you're never going to be uh, given a ticket for stopping at a stop sign, right? Uh, nobody's going to hassle you for being honest, generally, for not robbing a bank, for showing up on time for work, and giving your, your best effort at work or at school. Uh, in general, doing good will, will, will kind of uh, allow good to come to you. And that's a general rule. But you all know... That doesn't always work out in a fallen, broken world. And our world is very much broken. It's not the way it's designed to be. We've been designed for something much better than this. We've been designed for a person and a place, and that place ain't here. And that person is, has ascended to heaven, but we're going to see him again. 
So who's going to harm us as a general rule of thumb for doing good? As a general rule, people will not censor us or uh, slander us for doing the right thing. And that's why I put in the notes. And so when it does happen, and the readers of this book know it happens because they did the right thing and they lost their pensions and their jobs and their homes, it's especially disorienting because there's sometimes you just walk into a big controversy and you had no malicious intent and you feel like you did nothing wrong and people are mad and heads are rolling and it it hurts, right? Um, Now, notice... That's what that means because the whole book affirms that real Christians doing the right thing can and do suffer. Uh, But the next verse concedes, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, and the readers were, you're blessed. Okay, So just realize that you have some of these statements in Scripture that are generic, general rules of thumb that have a lot of exceptions. Okay? It's a, you need to read these things correctly. There's a similar kind of a wording in Romans 8.31, uh, which talking about justification by faith says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And it almost sounds like he's saying, hey, if God's for you, nobody's going to be against you. But is it true that if, if God's for you, you'll have real enemies? You know, Henry Kissinger said, just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean I don't have real enemies, right? Uh, if God's for us, if we're welded to God through the grace of God and the work of Christ, we're going to have real enemies. But the point of that kind of statement is not if God's for us, if we're on God's side, we can't have any enemies. It means if God's for us, who can be against us such that it matters spiritually? Right? Uh, who's going to harm us for doing good such that it matters spiritually? Uh, let's see what the Lord Jesus said on that topic. Look at Matthew chapter 5. This idea, if you have enough faith, you're never going to have any major problems. You'll never have any undeserved suffering. You'll always be healthy. You'll always be wealthy. You'll be at least 99 with no doctor's visits. Uh, that may work for a 35-year-old preacher boy uh, who happens to be in good health, but it's not going to work for the rest of us. And he, if he lives long enough, He's going to find it doesn't work either. We live in a fallen, broken, dying world. It's amazing how much good stuff gets uh, God can get into this fallen world. But uh, look what Jesus says in Matthew five eleven: Blessed are you. Oh my goodness, sounds like Peter's been listening to Jesus again. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. I wonder where Peter got that from. Well, he heard Jesus say this many times. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because you've got a reward in heaven that's literally out of this world. So go back to First Peter 3. Uh, the rhetorical question has obvious and uh, devastating exceptions. Let's go back to First Peter 1, actually. Let's just see who he's writing to and remind us of some of the things we've read. Peter writing to those who are aliens because of their faith. And even though they've lost their jobs and their pensions, he doesn't sit down and boohoo with them. He says, hey, you know what? It's not all bad. Put this in the frame of something much bigger and better. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, despite your problems, because according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. What does hope mean? 
you know, some of us are hoping the OSU Cowboys will have a really, really good football season this year because after that, we're going to go into rebuilding 101 mode, okay, for a while. So we're going to have a good season this year. So we're hoping that'll happen. Uh, we're hoping to beat OU twice. We may beat OU twice this year. That's the goal. Beat them in the regular season, beat them in the, uh, in the tournament, you know. But, uh, living hope, uh, the word hope in English means I hope something will happen. It might not, right? But Jack, biblical hope is faith projected forward and looking forward to something that's been promised to you by God. So for the, for us as Christians, our hope is to be absent from the body face to face with Jesus. So he's saying, hey, put your present sufferings, don't deny it, don't pretend like it, it feels good, it doesn't feel good, uh, but put it in larger context because God is doing great things around us. And we're going to receive an inheritance in heaven that even though you've lost your pensions in and around Antioch, the heavenly inheritance you've got waiting for you is imperishable, undefiled. It's not going to go anywhere. Nobody can mess it up for you. It's reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for an aspect of your salvation, ready to be real, revealed in the last time. And in this you greatly rejoice even now for a little while, you know, just maybe 10, 20, 30, 50 years if necessary, You've been distressed by various trials, right? Drop down to verse 13. Therefore, don't let your emotions rule you, okay? Uh, I was never a pilot because of a couple of issues. Lack of good eyesight, lack of intelligence, lack of tenacity, lack of courage, little things like that kept me from being a pilot. But my dad was a pilot, and uh, I'll never forget when he got his instruments rating uh, and when you take your instruments rating, instruments rating means you can fly at dark or in bad weather. You don't have to see anything. All you got to see is the instrument panel, and you can take off, fly, and land an airplane. And I never forget when he took that test, he had to put a hood on, uh, this thing on his uh, head, like a cap with a hood on it, such that he couldn't see out the windshield. All he could see is the instruments. And I always thought that was such an amazing thing. But that's a great analogy for the way we have to deal with much of life. When we're going through the storms of life, sharing beard and go through the storms of life and can't see the, the hand of God, you trust his heart. And you just go on your instrument panel. And these kind of passages are telling us what the instrument panel uh, uh, is t- telling us about God, even on your worst day, first day, worst day, last day. Look back at chapter 2, 19. This finds favor. If for the sake of conscience, based on you living out your convictions at high school, on prom night, during out-of-town business trips, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person, a believer, bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Verse 21, you've been called for this purpose so the world can see the difference. And after all, Christ suffered unfairly, undeservedly for you, and he left us an example. So what's the basic Game plan for Steve Skinner when he's dealing with unfair suffering. Do what Jesus did. Verse 23. Keep entrusting yourself to the one who judges righteously. You keep on trusting and obeying the Lord even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. Uh, Notice uh, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so we might die to sin and live to righteousness. There are a lot of things Jesus accomplished on on the cross, Ken, but the core thing he did was to provide a substitutionary atoning sacrifice 
for your sins and mine. Everything that could send Anthony to hell, Jesus Christ has died and paid for. And when he was finished with the atoning sacrifice, he said, tell us die. John 19.30, that's a term that means paid in full. Mission accomplished. That's the core of the work of Christ. He wasn't just a virtuous martyr, but he was the most virtuous martyr of all time. But he's the Savior based on his work. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not something you do for God. It's something he does for you. And you receive it as a gift through faith. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe active, receptive trust in his name. But to the one who does not work, but who believes in Christ, who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. So our sins imputed to him and judged, his righteousness imputed to us when we trust him as Savior. And then, Kyleen, you know this, when you first trusted Christ, God didn't just give you a get-out-of-hell-free card. He didn't even give you the card, because you might lose your card, okay? He holds it for you. But he also gives you a new capacity to serve him. So, of course, we're called to a life of good works. But that's the fruit. That's the effect. It's not the cause of salvation. That's the gospel message. That's where these people started the journey with Christ. That's where we all can or have. And that's basically our invitation to you today. So, we start with an interrogative uh, as a general rule, you're not going to suffer for doing the right thing, even though in a fallen, broken world it can happen, and these original readers know that for a fact because they're living it, right? Uh, look at verse 14a, and that just means the very first little part of verse 14. But, James, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Uh, you know, after being in the ministry now, uh, almost 29 years here and six and a half in Shreveport's over 35 years. Uh, you know, I've observed a lot of stuff and I am obsessive compulsive. So I have these lists, you know, I, I come up with in my brain and I've decided about 10 to 15% of people going to ministry are desperately trying to fix themselves. They are really confused people. Okay. <laughs> but I can see how a lot of my brethren get persecution complexes because to the extent you kind of become a visible professional Christian, you know, which I hate that term. I use that in derision because I want to think like that. But some of these people do think that way. Uh, you are going to face a certain amount of flack. I mean, just, you know, you play in a golf scramble, you know, and you happen to make contact and you're not terrible. When they find out you're a preacher, they just assume you're going to whiff it, you're going to shank it, you're going to miss all the putts. And if you actually make contact and actually find your ball, now they have to really do something with you, you know. And it's kind of like, well, he must spend all his time playing golf, you know. Uh, they expect you to be a clod, and if you you play bad that day, and I've done it before, and I said, well, of course, he's a preacher, he can't do anything, <laughs> he doesn't have a real job. And if you actually play good, like, ah, he spends, he's a preacher, he didn't have a job, he just plays golf all day long, yeah. Which is kind of what I do. It's called golf evangelism, but it's good. Uh, I've, I've told James, I'm going to buy me a golf cart. And I'm going to name my golf cart Prayer. And then I can tell people, well, Brad, where are you? Well, I'm in prayer. <laughs> I was in prayer all day Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. You know, that's a joke. I played golf once in the last two years. I hit balls once or twice a week just to remember which end the grip. 
Because it, after a while, you pull out of the bag, you're not sure which end of the grip, you know. Uh, the, really, the last year I played a lot of golf, I played so badly, I wore out the grip on my ball retriever three different times. That's how bad it was. It was really a bad year. Um, verse 14, Amy, is first part. But even if you should suffer, and he says, I know you're suffering. I know you've lost your jobs, your pensions. I, I get it. But even if you should suffer, when he's saying, that's so dysfunctional, you shouldn't be suffering for this. But as a folk, fallen, broken world, and horrible things happen to good people in this world. But even if you should suffer for sake of righteousness, you're blessed. That's what Jesus said back in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5. And you're blessed. How can they be blessed, Gene? They lost their jobs, lost their pensions, can't see their, can't get in the car and drive 500 miles and go see their mother like I'm going to do this afternoon. You know, pray for me. Uh, she's getting old. I mean, <laughs> yeah, my mom had Stevens Johnson syndrome about 10 years ago and uh, she almost died several times. And 10 years later, she is 10 years older, but man, she is blowing and going. And if you think I've got a quirky sense of humor, talk to my mom and you'll think I'm normal compared to her. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you're blessed because you're actually being salt and light. Now, we're talking about uh, hope, and I want to show you something really neat about our Christian hope, but let's go to the imperatives here found in verse 14b, middle of verse 14, verse 15, verse 16. Let's read that. So, you're blessed, you're suffering unfairly, so don't fear the intimidation or the put-downs or the insults. Even some Christians sometimes will look at you crosswise because you're suffering, thinking like Job's friends. You must have done something really bad to be suffering like that. Don't be troubled, but just recenter on Christ, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you for an account for the hope that's in you. But gently, gent- gently, gently and reverently, and keep a good conscience, stay consistent, so in the thing in which you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, depending on what English Bible you've got, in the middle of verse 14, my particular text has a different font, and it's all it's slightly smaller, but it's clearly a different font, and all the letters are capital letters, and that's the study Bible here telling me we're quoting from the Old Testament, and specifically we're quoting from Isaiah 8. So let's turn to Isaiah 8 in the Old Testament. Isaiah, as you know, uh, prophesied about 700 B.C. Um, and uh, he's thinking about the aftermath of the fall of the northern kingdom to Assyria and anticipating the future fall of the southern kingdom to the Babylonians. But look at what he says in chapter 8. You can't believe how relevant this is to where we are right now in this country. Um yeah, I want uh, Isaiah 8, verse 12, and let's read through uh, 13. You are not to say it's a conspiracy in regard to all uh, that this people call a conspiracy. You're not to fear what they fear, the fear they kind of are trying to impose on you or be in dread of it. It's the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, as special, you should center on and focus on pleasing, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Now notice, talking about a conspiracy there, uh, you know, just slam, da- slam dunk these claims of conspiracy. At this point in Isaiah's ministry, are you ready for this? There was a group of Jews in Judah who said, 
Isaiah was colluding with the Babylonians. Isaiah is colluding with the Babylonians. That's why he's saying, God says, submit to the Babylonian yoke. This is my punishment on you. This sound familiar? <laughs> uh, collusion, right? Now something else this week. But don't say it's conspiracy. Don't uh, think that the critics control the world. They don't. They may think they do. It's the Lord of hosts you need to focus on. But since we're so close, let's flip over to Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11 is a prophecy about what the world's going to look like after the Messiah comes in majesty to stop unfair suffering. And this is terrific, and this is something we should look forward to. Uh, as I understand Bible prophecy, and some Christians see it differently, after the second coming of Christ, he's going to set up a 1,000-year kingdom on the earth, which is what Isaiah is talking about here, and then give us a whole new universe after that. It's only going to get better. That's possible. But look at Isaiah 11. Uh, a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse. Jesse, David, all those prophecies to Jesus. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, a reverential awe for God the Father. And he'll not judge just by externals, uh, nor make decisions just by physical partial factors, but with righteousness, with perfection. He'll judge the poor, decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. There'll be no more people getting off because of lawyer tricks. And he'll strike the earth with a rod of his mouth. That's how he establishes his kingdom, second advent. With the breath of his lips, he'll slay the wicked. And righteousness will be the belt around his loins and faithfulness, the belt around his waist. Justice isn't pretty, but justice is always preceded by God's grace. Okay, people don't know that anymore. Verse 6, and during this literal millennial kingdom, after the second coming of Christ for a thousand years on earth, before we get a new heaven, new universe, the nature will be totally changed and become totally benign. There will be no more wild animals. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And all the albino polar bears will get along with the regular polar bears, you know. And a little boy will lead them. And the cow and the bear will graze. Bears eat meat now, but they're going to eat uh, vegetables later. Uh, their young will lie. It'll take a miracle. Yeah, it's going to take a miracle. That's what it's going to take, right. Perfect. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing, you know, it's the whole premise. The nursing child, the little baby, will play by the hole of the cobra. I, I, the only thing one night in Puebla uh, that was in English on the TV set in the hotel room was this uh, documentary about cobras. And I hate snakes, and I especially hate cobras. I mean, it was grisly, man. They had all this clear you know, photography of these cobras killing things and stuff. But, um, but yeah, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. And they will not hurt or destroy my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then it will come about in that day, after the second coming and the establishment of the kingdom of Christ, that the nations, all the nations, we'll have a UN in, in, New, in, in New York City, we'll have United Nations in Jerusalem, man, that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, the, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, uh, who will signal 
uh, who would stand as signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorified. Will be glorious. Love that. Go back to First Peter. So, in general, you're not going to face a lot of flack for doing the right thing, even though you guys are. And when it happens, it's very disorienting. But hey, you're blessed. Somebody noticed you're different, Zane. You're salt and light. That's the whole point of being here. So don't freak out. Don't let them intimidate you. Don't fear what they say or threaten to do to you. But instead, sanctify Christ as Lord. He's talking to believers here. Okay, he's saying get recentered on that. Okay, get recentered. Put Christ at the center of the pie chart of your life, and everything else comes out of that. And use their attacks as an opportunity to defend the faith. The word uh, to make a defense. Apologia in the original, we get the word apologetics today. Apologetics isn't apologizing for the Christian faith, it's making a reasoned defense, giving reasons for the faith, uh, which is an important part of the Christian life directly commanded here. Uh, to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope, you're looking forward to something much bigger than right now in Christ that's in you, yet with gentleness to them, let's not be condescending. Uh, and yet, let's not try to be so cool. Uh, I think sometimes we can be kind of, uh, uh, kind of self-righteous, church lady-like when we're talking to unbelievers trying to, you know, convince them of the faith. And other times, we can try to be so cool. You know, we light one up and we're smoking, you know, we're drinking a beer as we're telling them how great Jesus is. And I'm not sure that's the best way either, you know. Gentleness and reverence. In fact, the word there is phobos, is fear, the fear of God, reverential awe for God. And make sure you're consistent, okay? Keep a good conscience or nothing you're going to say is going to affect very much. So that in the thing in which you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior and cross be put to shame. Steve, I know that looks familiar to you. Doesn't it look like, kind of look like that purpose statement there a little bit? That's the last part of verse 16. What's the purpose statement again in the book? 2, 11, and 12. Keep your behavior excellent. Keep it consistent, Carol. So that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, uh, because of your good deeds... Uh, they may glorify God. Sounds very similar to what he says here. Uh, keep a good conscience. So in the thing which are slandered, those who revile your good behavior, may be put to shame. All their charges will be false. You're not dangerous, repressive, backward, and evil just because you happen to believe in Jesus Christ. Okay. Interrogative, insight, imperatives. Now let's look at insight two, divine viewpoint two. This is the shocking statement. From God's point of view, and it ought to be our point of view, if we're going to be true biblical disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ as believers in him, it's better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing the right thing rather than what's wrong and avoiding that suffering. Uh, It's better for us to do the right thing than compromise our character and avoid the bullet, as you might think. Now, it's interesting... uh, this almost sounds like a proverbial statement, Michael. And when you look at the book of Proverbs, there's about seven or eight different better than statements in the book of Proverbs. Um, so it sounds very much like that to me. One of those is found in uh, Proverbs 17.1 that says, Better is a dry crust, that's all you got for lunch, with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. You're going, wow, you know, I, I don't really want to just eat dry bread for the rest of my life. But it's just saying, hey, you may not be able to afford the caviar and the wine and all the stuff that some rich guy has, you know, in Beverly Hills. 
but he's working on his third wife and he's got four girlfriends, you know, and uh, none of them get along, you know. So uh, you're better off, believer, with just kind of the bare necessities and peace and quiet and, I don't know, uh, uh, a contented mind, right, and peace of mind. Better to have just the bare necessities. Better to drive a Yugo and not have to have a lawyer taking care of all of your ex-wives issues than uh, having a house full of uh, uh, driving a Rolls Royce and having all kinds of self-caused fallout kind of thing. So that's an example of a better than proverb. Another one is found in uh, Proverbs 19.22, which just says, it's better to be a poor man than a liar. And that's another one of those verses Joel Osteen's not going to tell you about. Because according to him, uh, you know, if you've got enough faith like he does, you're going to get a $15 million book advance too, I guess, for somebody else to write a book for you. I, you know, I, I could have written a better book for $5 million, you know, and I would have taken three, you know, uh, no problem. But uh, I've said it too many times, haven't I? I don't resent it, but I just find it bizarre, you know, that uh, some people can make so much money for that kind of stuff. Um, you think I resent it, don't you? I, I really don't resent it. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to do that. Uh, but the word of God says it's better to be a poor man than a liar. So what does that mean, Jack? What does that mean in your life? It, it's be- better not to cheat on a test. Not that you cheat on a test. This guy's a math whiz, you know. But it's better not to cheat on a test and make a D than to cheat and make an A. That'd be that'd kind of be one application I'm suggesting here. In other words, in God's eyes, it's better for a salesperson to be honest, brutally honest about his or her product and lose a sale than to lie about it to gain a million dollar commission. Now, you don't have to go in and you heard about the Christian uh, insurance salesman who didn't want to be pushy. Here's his sales pitch. You don't want to buy any insurance today, do you? That's not going to work. That's not a good way to represent your company. I sold scientific instruments uh, for Symmetrics in Houston between dental school and seminary. And, uh, you know, you don't go in and, and... In fact, what they taught us was use the weakest point of your product as part of your sales pitch as opposed to not mentioning it. And then, well, I just read Newsweek that sometimes this thing breaks down. You say, well, sometimes this thing breaks down, but the good thing of that is you're going to remember to always do the preventive maintenance because once you do that, it's only 99.9% chance it won't break down. You, get, you kind of bring up your weakest point honestly and give an honest solution and you're actually a better salesperson. So I'd be applying that kind of thing. But is it really better to be a poor man than a liar? If you could, if you could lie to somebody tomorrow and make a million dollars tax-free and nobody but God but God and me, because he would tell me, uh, Nobody but God would know. Could you overcome that temptation? I have to think about that. You know, Joe Olstein may call me tomorrow and want me to go write his next book, you know. Uh, I never know what's going to happen, you know. But I mean, that's a, that's a mind-blowing thing. And so is this. It's better, and I'm putting better in yellow that remind me we've got those proverbs, the better than proverbs. Better for us to do the right thing uh, the good thing, and suffer for it. And you, suffer might mean you lose clout with the in crowd at high school. Um, uh, I kind of grew up around golf courses as a kid. 
and I saw a lot of smoking, cussing, and drinking, and I was never impressed or amused by smoking, cussing, or drinking from a young young age. Uh, that was just an area that didn't really appeal to me. But I, I never forget the first time a kid in high school invited me to a party where they were all going to try to get drunk. It was uh, the legal age, and drinking I think was 21. But uh, we lived. Well, I'm, dri- I'm driving 500 miles to Beaumont this afternoon, uh, and uh, that's only about 30 miles from the. Louisiana border there, the Sabine River, and then Lake Charles is right across the thing. And the, the the drinking age in Louisiana at the time was 18. So Texas, you got to be 21, just 30 miles away, you can be 18. So a lot of these folks would get somebody who was 18 or had a car that said they were 18 to go across the river and bring the booze back. And I'll never forget, we were walking back from a basketball game, and one of my buds said, hey, we're going to have a party tonight. We're all going to get drunk. You want to come? And I realized, you know what? I've no desire to do that. I'm going to say no. But he's going to think I'm a wimp. He's going to think I'm... I mean, you won't believe this, but at that point, I wasn't a nerd. (laughs) I actually had hair, man. Um, And even though I didn't want to do it, I wasn't tempted to do it. I didn't really take it seriously. I wasn't going to do it, but I still kind of went, he's going to think I'm weird, you know? Um, He's going to think I'm not cool, you know? And no, no, I don't think I want to do that. And that was the last time he ever asked, which was good, because uh, not that I thought I was going to, and I've got other areas where I'm weak, but I just was, a, I'm not bragging about me, I'm just using that as a, an example. But I remember that to this day, and I'm an old guy, and I remember that. Uh, and you, I kind of lost the, my aura of coolness with a certain subset of uh, Nederland High School uh, people from that point forevermore. But that's, that's okay. I mean, I've survived pretty much, right? So, I just want you to wrap your, your mind around verse 17. God's saying, do the right thing and trust me to deal with the issues. I mean, it's better if it's God's will that you suffer for doing the right thing uh, rather than doing what's wrong and avoid the suffering completely. This idea that pragmatism, if it works, it's right and it's good, is not a good way to live your life. It's not a Christian way to live your life. Take this to heart. Um, we cannot cause our circumstances in this world to be fair, consistent, or stable. You know, everybody jokes about their weather, but in Oklahoma, we really should joke about our weather because it constantly changes and it's pretty wild. We get everything but hurricanes. I'm fixing to go to Beaumont. The only thing they get is hurricanes, okay? And they think I'm crazy for living up here. But, you know, my sister's house was destroyed by a hurricane. Dot's house was destroyed by a hurricane, my mother-in-law. Uh, and our house has never been hit by a hurricane up here in Oklahoma. So <laughs> uh, they just become big rainstorms by the time they get up here. We can't cause our circumstances in this world to be consistent or stable, but we can choose to remain consistent and stable in our Christian convictions doctrinally and morally, regardless of how difficult, painful, unfair, or negative may be our circumstances. We can kind of use... Uh, negative circumstances for positive goods because if we stay consistent, the light just shines that much more brightly. Uh, I close with this. You know, sometimes we wonder, how, how do we pray when somebody's dealing with some unfair suffering or, uh, you know, in part because of the Christian testimony, uh, maybe they didn't get the Crossman Award this time or something. If you believe in conspiracy theories, I think still in general the best person tends to win, tends to win things like that. 
But how do you deal with that? Well, you know, I don't think we, I don't think we, we usually pray, I usually pray, if a man is facing some kind of terrible suffering, like, you got all four wisdom teeth taken out at once? What's wrong with you? Why would you do that? That's pretty amazing. You know, we made you Hero of the Week with Homer this week. You see that? That's pretty amazing. She just gets it, just pull them all out at once, you know. But, uh, yeah, I think my, my, I guess I've been Joel Olsteinized because when you tell me about some terrible thing you've got happening to you, my first thing I pray is, God, take it away. <laughs> you know, like tomorrow, you know, real quick, or today would be better. Uh, but sometimes you pray for stuff like Paul found out, Sue. I mean, Sue's been on this health roller coaster for what, over a year now. And this just one thing after another. And I've prayed many times for healing, but you, last time, last uh, week when you were in the hospital, you reminded me of Paul, uh, prayed for his thorn in the flesh and God, however he said, that's not going away. You're going to have to deal with it. I'll give you the grace to handle it. Okay. But I'm not taking it away. I've got my reasons. I think in addition to praying, if it be God's will that he would eliminate the problem, and I will still pray for that for you, uh, I think we ought to pray uh, that people would remain consistent and stable uh, in their character despite the chaotic circumstances. You know, That's ultimately, I think, what God is wanting um, when we find ourselves in those hurricanes. I call it the eye of the hurricane, right? In the very center of the hurricane, you know, you got the swirling huge winds, but right in the middle, it's totally calm, right? And I do think that uh, the Lord Jesus at the cross Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy, not happiness, but joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. He's in the eye of the hurricane there, right in the center of God's will, and just submitted to that. Whatever comes, I'm going to love you anyway. Whatever comes, I'm going to rest in you anyway. Keep on trusting and obeying the Lord, even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. Father, please strengthen us and give us the battleship of the soul we need uh, to seek and remain in the uh, uh, eye of the hurricane. I know there are people in this very room that are, are have dealt with incredibly painful, difficult, unfair suffering. There are people in this room who are in the midst of very painful, very undeserved, uh, inexplicable suffering. And all of us are susceptible to that. I mean, we're one phone call away from complete devastation if a loved one were to, to be killed or murdered or uh, contract some horrible disease or have some horrible thing happen to them. And so forgive us for this sense of autonomy, that we control our circumstances, and if we're good Christian uh, people, you're never going to let anything very bad happen to us because this is a fallen, dark, broken world where all kinds of horrific things can happen but not without your permission. I know you don't promote evil, but you permit it, and you're going to filter it for your purposes. Uh, help us to be steeled and reminded today uh, to rest in you, that when we suffer, even though we're doing the right things, we're blessed. We've got the chance to, to live and shine the light and to stay stable in our character and our convictions despite the crisis. Give us the grace to think like that, to be prepared for that, to do that, and help us to have the grace to pray for others in that direction. 
uh, when we see them in these kind of situations. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.